0: How you doing? I'm well. How are you? How's how's your year so far? Um,
1: my year has been going. I think like everyone else's. Um, it's interesting to be teaching during COVID, um, but it's much better a hybrid model than just being virtual. I think. Um, so I've enjoyed that aspect of it and being in person.
0: I'm excited to talk to you about the middle school today, since <laughs> I don't I don't really know anything that's going on there. I've seen yeah. you guys outside under the tent at lunch, and that's yep. really the extent of my Because we just don't see each other at all.
1: I don't. That's absolutely right. I feel like I haven't seen you at all. (laughs) I mean,
0: I haven't seen... This might be the first time I've seen you on Gilman's campus this year, which is bizarre. That might be right. Which is very weird. But for people who don't know you, maybe you can tell us what you do at Gilman. What do you do here?
1: Sure. So I am a second-year Penn Fellow. I teach sixth-grade geography and seventh-grade U.S. history, and I sort of coach whatever is needed to be coached. Mm-hmm. Um, so last year, um, I was coaching flag football, which was really fun. This year, I'm coaching noodle football, which is a COVID-friendly version of that. Um, I was starting to coach last year in a scholastic middle school track and field, and that obviously was canceled because of COVID. Um, and I yeah that's extent of my um official responsibilities in the middle school.
0: No rugby yet. You haven't started the rugby club?
1: I brought it up briefly, um and I was told that if football is something that's diminishing at Gilman, rugby will definitely not be something that is allowed. really?
0: Yes. Well, I think rugby is safer
1: it it is for concussions, right. But for people who don't necessarily understand that aspect of it. They will think that it is more brutal because you're not wearing pads. But what they don't understand is if you're not wearing pads, your body is literally telling you as a mechanism: do not throw yourself at someone. Yeah, and don't football. lead
0: with your head. And right. Their form, rugby players' form, is better than.
1: I mean, I would say so, but that's my bias <laughs> as a former rugby player.
0: Oh, so wow! So you you tried to start rugby?
1: Um, well, very briefly. It was a brief conversation. I didn't actively try to lobby anyone to create it, but um, it was a brief interaction and it was like, it probably won't succeed um, at Gilman, which is upsetting to hear, but who knows, maybe in a couple of years time. I know I have a 6th grader now who plays in an outside rugby league and he really enjoys it.
0: Are there other, do you know if there are other schools around here that have rugby teams and programs?
1: I think so. Um, I'm not sure of how many and how popular it is, but there are a lot of outside club teams now starting um, and beginning as early as in Middle school, which is pretty neat.
0: That'd be awesome if Gilman had a rugby program too. Um, So maybe you can talk about your rugby career in college and how you started playing rugby I'm interested.
1: Sure Um, so sort of bittersweet I wasn't able to play all throughout college Um, I began playing my freshman year I was a walk-on so um, it was actually the first year that Dartmouth women's rugby was a varsity team Um, it had been club for every single year prior we had like a new coaching staff and they really wanted to be varsity so Um, the coach actually reached out to me. I would say, I don't know how this happened, but during preseason, I was, like, one of the people on campus. I was there for, like, a first-generation college student, like, preparatory program. Mm -hmm. So I was on campus before um, pre-orientation, and she sort of just saw me and was like, it looks like you can run through a brick wall. And I was like, I don't know if that's (laughs) offensive, but um, we'll see what happens. And so I tried out, and I made the team, and, like, ever since, I've really enjoyed the... uh, I enjoyed being part of the program, but... Um, I was concussed, unfortunately, three times throughout my um, time on the rugby team, so it eventually got to the point where I could no longer, like, be eligible to play because I could not pass, like, my baseline um, mm-hmm. that you have to take, which was sad, but I was always a part of the team, and um, my best friends are from the team, but mm-hmm. I just couldn't um, partake in any competition play anymore.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, you're still a part of the program for four years, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... That's cool. Um, What kind of led you to wanna try out for the team? You hadn't played before, you hadn't done anything, like you weren't even
1: kinda just walked on. I didn't play uh, rugby, but I had always been an athlete, so I was on the cross country team. Um, in high school, and I played on a like interscholastic flag football league that was the varsity thing in New York City, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that it was a little more aggressive than just flag. Like I'm pretty sure I got my first concussion action in high school, um, my senior year in high school. So um, I had been exposed to like competitive play and like playing on interscholastic teams, but. I had no clue that I wanted to play a sport in college. I was just like, okay, I'll be pretty athletic while still here. But I wasn't thinking about walking on to, like, a varsity team and, like, winning a championship. Like, I don't think that that would have been on my radar.
0: (laughs) Kind of just fell into place and you joined. And then you got all, like, that's the biggest thing for me, which I feel lucky about, is as soon as I stepped foot on campus in college, I had a group of 50 guys that were immediately my friends. So Mm -hmm. that's, I mean, even if you weren't recruited to play rugby, you still had that all those friends for four years. Yeah,
1: immediately. And like, there was no choice, right? Like, you have to be my friend. We're on the same team. Right. (laughs) So we better make the best out of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then, so you had the concussions, then you had the knee injury, right?
1: Yeah, that was my senior year. Uh, It was my, um, right before actually I graduated. Um, And I tore my ACL and my MCL, complete ruptures, tear three. Um, Ended up having surgery and then moved to Baltimore um, within two weeks' time.
0: So you you had the wheelchair, right? And then you had the crutches. Yep. That was a whole...
1: It was an ordeal.
0: How's it, do, how's it doing now? How's the knee?
1: Great, I work out every day.
0: Yeah, it's feeling it's fine. fine?
1: It feels fine, it's just a little sore every now and then, a little swollen, but yeah. overall it does the trick. It gets me where I need to go.
0: That took like, what, a full year and a half to recover from?
1: Yes, I got surgery in July and then I ended up getting a second surgery in October to sort of fix some stuff up, get rid of some scar tissue because I had developed too much um and then i would say i was like really in the swing of things and like when COVID hit actually <laughs> like maybe march mm-hmm. um so not a full year but now we're at the full year span where i really feel like i'm going somewhere like it's getting much better and i don't feel like the everyday pain that i used to
0: mm. yeah, yeah i remember it was pretty bad when i first met you i was pushing you in the wheelchair yeah, across you
1: at... penn's campus
0: <laughs> yeah so maybe we can talk about the Penn Fellowship and how that's going, or or for people who don't know what that is, because I think even though, like, obviously, people at Gilman, some people know what it is, but maybe we can explain that for people like parents and people outside of it, what, what the fellowship is and how it's going for you so far in your second year.
1: Sure. So um, the fellowship is typically for young professionals who don't have a lot of teaching experience or any for that matter. Um, and in essence, You are getting your master's in education and not teaching, which is very important and I think a huge pull and appeal for a lot of us that end up doing the fellowship. Um, And it is a two-year commitment to the school that you're placed at. And I was fortunate enough to be placed at Gilman and be the middle school sort of third, is that third year, um, Penn Fellow. And um, yeah, I initially did not know that I wanted to sort of be in middle school or that I even wanted to teach history. But um, it seemed like the best bet and something that I actually am really passionate about now. So I'm happy to have been there and to have this experience. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's what the Penn Fellowship is. Did
0: you know you wanted to teach, like, in college? Did, did you, you did, would you study in college? <laughs> did you know that this yeah. is the track for you? Or how did you fall into teaching?
1: So I actually attended a summer program. Um, throughout all of high school. So my ninth, 10th, 11th grade summers, it's called Mathematics and Science for Minority Students. And that's at Phillips Academy. And it basically like drills into students that they should be engineers and that they should be very high performing like STEM, in the STEM field. Um, so for a long time, I thought I was gonna be an engineer. I really enjoyed math and science and i got to dartmouth and my freshman year i wanted i was placed into too high of a math class or what i thought was too high um i had taken ap statistics and ap calculus in high school and was placed into math 13 at dartmouth and everyone was like don't do that your freshman fall and then um came freshman winter and i was like do i take math 13 now and when I, like, thought about it, I was like, there's no way I remember any of this calculus anymore. Mm-hmm. And I felt like my window of opportunity had closed. Um, so to those people that told me not to do it, thank you. But also, wow, you really <laughs> crushed my dreams of being an engineer. Um, and so I started off then um, being a cognitive science major. And I did that for three years up until my junior year. Um, and I studied abroad my junior fall. I went to Ghana. And that was what shifted my trajectory. And oh, wow. so. Yeah, so I ended up switching my major my junior winter, which is really late, um, and I ended up switching to sociology modified with, uh, so that's like a double major I guess at other places, um, with African and African American studies. Um, and a minor in human development and education because uh, Dartmouth doesn't allow for an education major, which speaks to what we value as a school sometimes. Mm. Um, So I, I knew that I wanted to do something related to education and people, but I did not know that that was going to be teaching. And the reason for that is my background in STEM and like wanting to be more than, which I think now it's funny when I say that, because I'm like, teachers are doing more than anyone else at this moment. Um, yeah,
0: that's true. Like, <laughs> especially with COVID, the essential yeah. jobs, everyone was talking about, like, people at the grocery store, doctors, and teachers. nurses, <laughs> and teachers, yeah. right? And yeah. all, all the other professions are kind of like, oh, just like,
1: you're still doing your job just yeah. from home. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so I um sort of didn't want to be a teacher because the rationale or the thought process at Dartmouth is like, why are you going to Dartmouth to be a teacher? Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you got, why are you going to Harvard to be a teacher? Like, that mm-hmm. seems counterintuitive and it's a terrible rationale that we shouldn't have. Um, but it's how people operate.
0: Yeah, I don't like that question. <laughs> <laughs> because I've learned more teaching than I did in all my years in school.
1: Particularly these two years, you know? Like, yeah. So.
0: Um, so I'm interested in Ghana. What what was that? What was that like? Because that kind of shifted your worldview a little bit, yep. and definitely changed what you wanted to study. Maybe. Yeah. So what was the attraction to Ghana? And because ha- Dartmouth, you have to go abroad, or you don't have it... to,
1: but we have like seventy percent of our student body studies abroad, so it's like very popular.
0: Why is that? Is that just something that they emphasize at at Dartmouth?
1: Yeah. So because we're pretty small, and our campus is not. Um, able to host everyone on campus, you actually have a neat. We run out a quarter system, um, and people are encouraged to take a term off. So my sophomore winter was off, and I was um, working at a school in Boston that year, or that term. Um, and then my junior fall was going to be like another off term, and I decided to take it on but be abroad. Um, they basically just try to get people to be off campus because they're like, we can't host all 5,000 of you if you're on campus. Mm. Like, there's not enough room.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: it's like a way to get people to do other stuff um, in a maybe not intentional way. I don't think any architect thought of this many years ago, but it just so happened to, like, work in the favor of students. Um, So I knew I wanted to study abroad. I really enjoyed traveling. The first trip I took was when I was 17 to Hawaii by myself. Like, I really, or sorry, I was 15, Yeah, and it was through Brown University, like one of their um, environmental leadership programs. Um, And so I knew I wanted to study abroad. I was not sure where that was going to be, but I had taken a lot of um, African-American study courses in college, even previous to junior year. And I had awesome professors who I really, um, who sort of like spoke about this program. It was also a unique program. It runs every two years, as opposed to other programs that run every quarter or every year. And so I was in Ghana from August of my junior year through um, late November, and I learned so much. Um, I had the unique experience of visiting slave castles, which was like a very intense moment, Um, super emotional. I have, my background is my parents are both Caribbean, they're from the Dominican Republic, so sort of trying to understand what side my family was on. um, It's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, I just learned so much that I never thought I would have learned and don't think I could have learned from Dartmouth's campus. Mm. Um, so I became much more interested in learning about how people interact with one another, um, why cultures are so different, how we have so still so much in common, and I started like to adopt this worldview of the world is so much smaller than we actually seem in a like sort of enormous way. Like I understand that the world is large and there are so many different cultures, but there's so much that we all share in common with one another that we don't think about very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to explore more of that. And that's where my sociology major sort of came in.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'll be the first to admit I don't know really anything about Ghana. I'm what sure. what um can you, can you maybe tell me about that country and that culture? What, what yeah. is it all about there? And what would you pick up?
1: Yeah, so one thing that um, I... Well, some of my favorite facts I can share with you. Yeah, you got um, facts on hand. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, so I have a blog, actually, from when I was abroad. So if you ever want to look it up, you can. Okay. Um, What's but, it called? I don't know, like...
0: People are going to look <laughs> it up.
1: <laughs> like, it's like a WordPress page. It's like FSP, like a CRA, A-C-C-R-A. Okay. Um, and you can probably find it, but don't necessarily look. Okay. <laughs> um, and... One of the coolest things is that they have given names and day names. So if you are born on a particular day, you have that name. So I think like Friday or Saturdays are your Kwame if you're a boy. I would be Abna, A-B-E-N-A, because I was born on a Tuesday. And that's the female name given to um, women who are born on Tuesdays. Um, So that was my name pretty often. I was called Abna instead of Erica which was wow. interesting. I so thought they, it was like a diss and they're like, no, no, it's just because you're Tuesday born. I was like, oh wow. yeah. Uh, so that was pretty cool. So they have like two names. Um, and then another
0: every, every other day of the week, you're just called Erica. And then on Tuesday, no,
1: no. And you, on Monday you have a given name. I just can't remember what all of them are, but Monday through Sunday, like all days, um, If you're male or female, you get a given name. Okay. Yeah, I just don't recall what they are. I mean, why would I? I only know mine. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then another thing that I found interesting was that um, giving your left hand to anyone, like to greet them. Um, Is deemed pretty disrespectful. So you should never receive anything with your left hand if it's food um, If you're giving someone like a handshake, it shouldn't be with your left hand It should be with your right hand, which is I think similar to American culture Mm -hmm. and other cultures Um, But it was like deemed pretty disrespectful if you ever tried to do that Um, and um, Giving the thumbs up to someone was also disrespectful Hmm. Um, so you should not give the thumbs up to people in Ghana because they can think you're being very disrespectful.
0: Did you learn the hard way there? Or? No,
1: I was told in like my cultural class, oh, that- <laughs> like the first week of school, that was like no- rule number one, here are the do's and do not's. Okay. Um, yeah. And I, I met a couple of she- chiefs while I was there, which was pretty cool. Like, um, for some of their tribes and like local, uh, tribes that were in my area, which was cool. Um. And yeah, and yeah, those are my fun facts. I can't.
0: Did you stay with the family? Did you stay in the hotel? Where, where'd you stay? Where'd yeah. You live?
1: So we did not have host families because the year previously that was, um, uh, or two years before that, um, there were some issues that occurred from just um, students in the program. So they actually shifted it and we were like in our own. Um, So I lived with three other girls who were also on the trip with me. It was a very small study abroad program. It was eight of us. Hmm. Um, So I lived with the other three females who were on the trip in um, an apartment complex, like maybe a five-minute walk from the university. Okay. Um, So, yeah. But I wish I would have stayed with a host family, I think. It would have been a neater experience or more. I would have learned a bit more. Did I think. you make
0: friends and everything down there? Did you meet a lot of people, I'm sure?
1: Yeah, so it was cool because we actually attended Webster University in Ghana, which um, there's a Webster University in the U.S., and that's just their um, sort of satellite campus. Um, and then we were also near the close or the biggest university, so University of Legón, um, which is the capital like in accra ghana um so we were like a five minute walk from there so like we often used their facilities like we would run on the track at like five o'clock in the morning and we met a lot of people through that okay. um which was neat so we had like two universities that we often like associated with mm-hmm. um so yeah I, i'm still in contact with those people actually which is pretty cool
0: through social media, and, yeah,
1: yeah. Cool. yeah, and we're like trying to have a five-year anniversary where we go back. So hopefully that happens.
0: That's coming up. Yeah, for but you.
1: hopefully that. Yeah. It's April top. I
0: know. Yeah, and you probably keep in touch with the Dartmouth girls still too. Yeah. So what? Um, so when you went to Ghana, what made you switch from your original interest in math, science yeah. to sociology? D- did that happen in Ghana?
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would say it happened like. I was taking this course called um, Indigenous Slavery, and I, first off, was completely ignorant to the fact that um, African people also enslaved one another, um, not for the same reasons, obviously, like the transatlantic slave trade and when we study that, but um, it still existed, and I was completely ignorant to that before, and I was really fascinated by that. Um, I also did a project during that term where I was looking at refugees um from Liberia and how they had come to Ghana, in fact, I had like i would say of the strip that I lived on, there were very often refugee populations on there like begging for money and food and stuff. And I was, again, fascinated by that idea and that concept of um, people having to literally, like, seek asylum in neighboring nations for whatever reason. Um, So I would say, like, it was just... I I was much more intrigued by what I was beginning to learn and study compared to um, the monotonous, like, cognitive science where I was learning about the brain, but I wasn't thinking about... I was thinking about how certain things work within itself as a function, but I wasn't ever thinking about the person and how it might be different for different people, Mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. And I I like the more holistic picture that I was painting with sociology, where I can still use my background in cognitive science, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. consider how it's very different for people across the world, you know, like, it, it was just making me, I think, think more broadly about the things that I had been interested in and be able to consider like new issues that were sort of pressing in my mind.
0: Yeah, I think for a lot of people studying abroad and living in another country, we had Zealand on, Zealand was on the podcast and we were talking about that too, like he does a really good job in his Spanish class making the Spanish language and what living in Spain or Mexico would be like, you know, real to the students in Mm -hmm. class, but there's nothing like going to another country and it just, it shifts your worldview completely.
1: Yeah, I think it's super cliche and I still think it's super true. Yeah.
0: Well, I think a lot of cliches are pretty true if, yeah. you, if you dive into them. We were talking about that today in class. But um, so you were there for one semester, mm-hmm. met a lot of people were with your Dartmouth friends. That sounds so. You came back and all of a sudden you were like, I'm going to be a sociology major.
1: Yeah. So I actually sat down with my best friend, who was a sociology major at the time, um, and I had to change my sort of like declaration. Um, so I, this is
0: fairly late junior year to yeah, change like your major. Yeah, it's like unheard
1: of. At Dartmouth,
0: particularly. Oh yeah, I mean, junior <laughs> but, year, you're like rat. You're finishing up. You could be right. done by senior year. Your major.
1: Yeah, so I had never taken a sociology class um, at Dartmouth previous to that, and got back to campus junior winter and was in four enrolled in four sociology classes, um, and you only take three classes at Dartmouth. But I was like, I need to get ahead on, like, I need to do something mm-hmm. quicker. Um, and so I ended up being in a class with a lot of like freshmen <laughs> I was like, oh, this kind of yeah. sucks, but it was awesome. Um, yeah. So I sat down with my friend and I was like, how do I declare my new major? Because it needs to happen.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Um, only three classes at Dartmouth.
1: Yes. Cause we run on a quarter system. So what you learn okay, okay. at Harvard in 16 weeks, we learn in 10. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so maybe, I'm interested in your experience at Dartmouth because just from talking to you, I know that you love that experience there. Yeah. Um, what were some of the things you did on campus other than rugby and switching your major? <laughs> what, what was that time at Dartmouth like for you?
1: Um, so it was, I think, one of my the best four years of my life. People say that often. Again, another cliche, that's very true. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the best things about it was um, – feeling like you are at a small school that is still affording you the same opportunities as big schools do. Um, so you are able to do research with professors. You're able to sort of take advantage of being on campus and having like a wide array of friends um, that I think that in big schools, you you don't necessarily get that. Like you find your group and you're like, this is my group and I don't want to branch out. Mm-hmm. Um, but my graduating class was like 1,200 kids, which is not huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to sort of meet a lot of people from different social groups, which was nice. Um, and I was a first-generation college student in, in college. Um, and so I was part of the FGLI, is what they now call it. So first-generation low-income, um, which doesn't necessarily always apply to everyone in the group, but that's what they name it. Um, and I led, there's this conference called the IVG, which is like across, it started off with just um, Ivy League students and that were first-gen having this conference once a year, but it's now expanded nationwide to include other schools. So now I think it's up to, like, 36 schools. Um, so that was a fun thing to be a part of, like, get together once a year with these people who were like-minded and sort of went through similar struggles. So I very much enjoyed being a part of that community at Dartmouth, and that gave me a lot of my friends. Um,
0: you went to certain locations for that yeah, across so the country? Yeah, so one year or? it was
1: – the. One year that I led the conference officially, it was at Harvard actually. Oh, okay. um, the year after that was at Yale. The year before that was at Brown. Um, I think that they still try to stick to like um, Ivy League locations, but students from like Pomona College in California were there, mm-hmm. which was really neat um, and then another thing that I was very much involved with was the uh, social the Center for Social Impact and Service on campus, um, so my senior winter or yeah my senior like inter winterum I was actually able to do service in the Dominican Republic which is like really neat because my parents are from there I've been there a bunch of times um and so we did like two weeks of service on a service learning trip um so yeah I just like very much took up, up like advantage of opportunities that I think like aren't always afforded at bigger schools when you may not even be aware of that mm-hmm. um my freshman year I applied to like teach English in China at a school through a particular program. I didn't get accepted, but um, if I would have, it would have been a cool experience right. too. Um, and so, yeah, I, I tried to take advantage of as many like smaller opportunities um, while I was at Dartmouth. Especially
0: if you can travel too. Yeah. So would you? What were the service projects in the Dominican Republic?
1: So we worked with this organization called the Mariposa Foundation, which means the Butterfly Foundation. Um, and it's a program for all girls between the ages of um, six, I believe, or seven, all the way through high school. And what they try to do is, in essence, get these girls who are definitely from low-income homes, oftentimes from broken families, um, and they like teach them to like surfboard. They teach them to swim. Um, they teach them how to do school, like, how to get resources and give them resources. Um, and a lot of these girls end up going to, like, um, international schools. So they there's um, girls that are in Costa Rica at the international school there. One went to Hong Kong to their international school there. So in essence, just giving them opportunities beyond the island of the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked with them for two weeks, and they do a lot of like environmental conservation. So we also um, did some environmental stuff there, um, and like learned a lot. Like I learned so much on that trip that my parents had not told me about before. Um, Is that, that your was first really time there? No, I've been there many times before, okay. but it was just a different part of the island.
0: Yeah, and this probably this experience in the DR and um, in Ghana that probably. Led you towards the education, right? Yeah. especially Dominican Republican, we were working with younger girls. Yeah. did Did you start to think about teaching or education on that trip?
1: No. Yeah, so I had done service trips before. I went to Fiji and taught English there, and that was really cool.
0: Wow, you've been Um, traveling. You travel a lot. (laughs)
1: um, And my trip to Ghana, I worked at—you had to have a service component, and I worked at a refugee camp. Um, So I I was exposed to working with kids very often, um, but I think that I, again, shied away from it. I, I just had this mentality that, like, like, teaching world is too small for me, right? Like, I, I couldn't possibly just want to teach. I had to do something more, um, which, again, is incredibly problematic, but I think, like, what we get when we go to particular schools, um, and so I sort of realized that there's a lot more to just, like, the teaching world, right? Like, you're not just a teacher. I think it emphasized, it's emphasized a lot at Gilman. Like, you're also a coach. You're also a mentor. You're also someone who, in a lot of ways, like, is a, a huge resource for your kids. Um, and, so
0: And I think about it, even for me i think about teaching and coaching i'm my main thing is like i'm an english guy like yeah. i'm passionate about reading and writing like that comes first for yeah. me if you're not passionate about sociology or what you are teaching i think that's number that's number 1 yeah. and then like that your love for kids and working with kids like that's very important too obviously but that's almost not secondary at gilman but that's like the people here are just in love with their subject okay. first Almost like a per- professor would be, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so what? So what made you want to teach boys at Gilman School? How did you find Gilman? How did you get here?
1: Yeah. So um, I sort of started my. I did an internship my junior summer where I worked at a charter school network in New York, um, and didn't really enjoy that experience. I wasn't actually working with kids. We just sort of had. A bunch of adults or seniors rising seniors in college pretend to be children and i was like i can't really get a feel for what teaching feels like yeah literally really? we were just like okay pretend to like behave bad and now i have to be the teacher that's correcting your behavior and I, at that point i wasn't sure that i wanted to teach because i was like this seems really weird and i'm not getting an authentic ex- experience um and so my um, senior fall, I started to look at um, teaching. I had a friend, actually an older friend, who did this particular program at Lawrenceville, um, and she started to speak to me a bit more. And I knew that I wanted to sort of get a master's um, as close to finishing um, undergrad. That was really important to me. And I looked at Carney Sando. I did, I ended up doing Educators Ally. Um, and That worked
0: really well for me, too. Yeah, awesome. What's more... <laughs> personal maybe than Carney Sando in my experience. I think because
1: so, it's a little smaller, I think, yeah. so.
0: But, like, they'll, they'll like, pers- personally email me, all like, all the time. Yeah. Hey, Jake, how's it going? <laughs> Just checking in, you Agreed.
1: Know? <laughs> I um, wonder if we have the same recruiter. <laughs> yeah,
0: maybe. She's, she's great, though. Same. Yeah.
1: Um, so, I ended up working with them, and I told them, like, I really want to be um, let aware of opportunities that you can get your master's and teach. Um, and so, this opportunity came across, and I... Knew that I didn't want to be at a boarding school. I think it was a—it's a lot more responsibilities. And as a younger female faculty, I was not necessarily sure of wanting to do that. Um, and then I didn't—it wasn't appealing to work at an all-school girls school either. So I was like an echo ed or all boys. Um, and then I came across Gilman, and I started my interview process with Bart, who's no longer here. But it was awesome, and he was awesome, and. Mm-hmm. I visited and now I'm here and this is my second year so yeah uh, it was sort of like this was really only the the only school that I actually applied to and wanted to work at and was really intrigued by the Mm. school model and stuff um
0: what, what about it specifically?
1: I think that I had never really expo- been exposed to the private school world, and from what I saw, I, I observed Andre Jones, and that was the class that I was in, and I was like, this teacher is phenomenal. Um, these kids are so sold on this. I had never seen that. Like, I, I feel like every classroom I had ever been in middle school was like there were two kids that were paying attention and it was maybe not even me all the time like it was two kids were really sold and then everyone else was like what are we doing here and that was not Gilman it was like everyone was like on task everyone was doing what they were doing and were engaged um and that was fascinating to me I had never seen anything like that I had never worked at a place like that the school I worked at Boston is now closed like that gives you a sense of like the demographics of students I had worked with and the schools I had been at um yeah. Andre
0: is an interesting guy and he's someone I want to get on the podcast yeah. because you've I mean you've told me that he would be awesome on here. Yeah. Um I don't know him well enough but yeah that's amazing that he had such control over a room <laughs> of middle schoolers. Yeah. Were you, did you ever think about teaching upper school or lower school, was it always middle school? Or? Uh,
1: certainly not lower school. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely, yeah.
1: I think that, kudos to those that can do that. I cannot, I'm not one of those people. I think I, I'm still working on my patience, um, so lower school would have been difficult. Well I
0: say that about middle school too, you must have a lot of patience. I'm,
1: the... I'm getting there, I'm yeah. trying. Um, and then for upper school, I just knew that there were phenomenal people already in the history department, so um, I sort of wanted to work with possibly a younger group of kids that I can mold their minds a little bit and help get them to sort of start thinking about a bigger, um, perspective or broader Mm -hmm. perspective.
0: What was, so my first year teaching, I was teaching 11th and 12th or 11th grade to start off and it was tricky. It was tough. Like I had never been Mr. Scott before. People (laughs) calling me Mr. Scott. I'm like, uh, Yeah. Not I. (laughs) You know, I feel like I I felt like I was almost kind of just in school and it it took a while for me to get used to the classroom and interacting as the authority in the room. Mm -hmm. Was that more natural for you coming in your first year or did it take some time to adjust for you?
1: Um, I think I had command of my classroom um, and was like a strong presence in the room. I have a pretty loud voice. So I think that the kids knew that I was there. Did I always know what I was doing? No. Um, Did I always give the great the best lessons no um, there was a lot of times where I did feel like an imposter I was like wow I am honestly 21 years old trying to teach these kids and I don't know half the time right like it's it's particularly at Gilman the boys are really smart and ask questions where I'm literally left speechless I'm like mm. wow you really got to this point on your own and also think that I know the answer to this question like there's no way um, and at the very beginning I was sort of... Um, I wouldn't be upset by getting a question I didn't know the answer to, but it's definitely, like, a slight on you. Like, oh, like, you really need to do more research, right? Yeah. Um, And so I eventually learned how to pivot that and tell them, like, I don't know the response to this, but you can, like, you can do an independent research project, come back to the class tomorrow and tell us the answer to that. And that was, like, yeah. a power move that I started to use because previously I was, like, I'm sorry, I don't actually know the answer to that and I don't know how to help you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just ask Siri real quick. Hey Siri. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I found in I don't know if this works, the same way in the middle school, but just telling my students that's a really good question. I don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading the same story as you guys are. Right. The same talking about the same subject, but I'm not an all, you know. I'm not God. I don't know every. <laughs> I don't know every answer. Right. Right. I'm not Google. So we can learn together. We have the internet right here. We can piece it together. Mm-hmm. And I think the older kids appreciate that. Um, but I like the turn it flip it on them and say, hey, that's a really good idea. Yep. Charlie, why don't you go home and my thing. come in tomorrow and give us a 10-minute spiel yep. on it. Yeah,
1: Five-minute spotlight. That's what I do. I'm like, what'd you learn? what you got for me?
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So in the middle school, are there behavior? Is there anything behavior-wise that you've had to – because I always think – Teaching middle school, and I've done lacrosse stuff with younger kids too, the the loud voice for sure <laughs> helps. You have to raise your voice sometimes. You know, yeah. you have to, you have to, they have to be a little scared of you. Mm-hmm. Um, like, are there tricks that you've, I'm sure there's a ton of tricks that you've picked up in the middle school classroom that work and like snap their attention back on you.
1: Um, yeah, I would say I, I like to have a collaborative space where they feel like they are equal to me still, even at a younger age. Um, And I think one tactic I use very frequently, I used it three times today actually, Um, if a kid is just not there with me and I can see that, right? Like they're not trying to be sneaky about it. They literally just lose focus and you've got to bring them back in somehow. It's just like a quick, in the middle of my speech, I'm like, Jake, like... Just a quick notion. So, like, today it was like, yeah, so uh, Tokyo is still planning to, like, host the Olympic Games this summer, right, Aiden? Like, I would say something like that, Um, and they'll catch on and be like, oh, it's time to come back in. It's time Mm -hmm. to listen. Um, And then another thing for me is just, um, yeah, I think it's just – making sure that kids are a hundred percent engaged with you and if they have those moments but they where they aren't like it isn't the end of the world right mm-hmm. it's human nature to sort of fall yeah. in and out every once in a while um yeah
0: i have those moments all i'm the sure time. you do Jane. all the time <laughs> um especially on zoom it's very hard to stay yeah in tune on zoom are you got you guys are hybrid model right you're, you're
1: yeah so we have wednesdays we're on zoom um but every other day we're in person okay so mm-hmm. that's good
0: yeah um how has the Zoom been going for you or how have you how have you woven technology into this whole situation? I'm sure you're pretty good with it, but <laughs> what what are some things that are working for you during COVID with the technology and the teaching? You know, it's a very bizarre situation.
1: Yeah, I would say that um, Wednesdays are pretty interesting when I do get to meet with my classes um, And I think that technology works best on Wednesdays because we're all at home, not counting on just one internet Wi-Fi connection. Um, So Mm -hmm. I I sometimes feel like I'm able to do more, actually, on those virtual days, just because I'm not worried about who's in class and who's at home and how I have to work the owl, right? Um, But I think that because we've been virtual or we have people that are still virtual while we're in person, um, I've been afforded different privileges. Like in like last year i was able to have all of my kids interview someone from africa for their research project like i literally tapped into my network and i was like these are my 11 kids and every single one of them is going to do a research project about a particular country that wouldn't have happened had my kids been in person because there would what would those 10 other kids be doing while one kid is interviewing someone right Mm so i was able to do that oh that's Um, cool yeah how did that go it was awesome. Yeah. Um, they exist on my Google Drive. I was hoping to make it bigger than that, but I'll speak to our librarian and see what can happen. That'd but, be awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I I mean, they were like interviewing like thirty year olds, and they were like having a conversation, which again, another appealing part about Gilman boys like can just carry themselves in a particular way that's pretty impressive. That mm-hmm. I don't think every eleven year old can do. Mm-mm. Like using technology to your advantage, I think has definitely been a learning curve, but has been a productive and effective one.
0: Yeah, and I think especially with the Penn Fellowship, you've gotten a lot of experience yeah. with the on especially now. Yeah. For me that program was super helpful because it's not you're doing your masters while you're having this teaching experience, but your masters is mostly all online and yeah. through Canvas and through uh, we didn't use Torch. Zoom. Torch is another one. Mm-hmm. Just these different apps and programs online that we're learning how to use. So as soon as COVID hit and we were virtual, it was like, oh, okay. I've been doing this. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing this for two years. Yeah, uh, But that's hard for other people to pick up and figure out. Um, mm-hmm. But the Penn Fellowship right now, that's too bad that you can't have those weekends and those weeks at Penn and the right. other schools. But how has that been going in your second year? I haven't really talk to you too much about that.
1: Um, it's going well. I sh- started my inquiry officially, um, which has been very fun. Um, I, my inquiry question, in case you're curious, is um, how can I create opportunities for students to engage in the critical retelling of American history? Um, so basically having kids critically think about the way that history is presented to them, which has been fascinating to sort of get their feedback and their responses. Um, and yeah, that's essentially what second year Penn fellow is, right? Like all you're doing is working on your inquiry or your thesis or whatever other schools might call it.
0: So I have a question about your inquiry, but before that, for people (laughs) who don't know, like what is the inquiry project?
1: Um, you probably can answer this better than I can, but I'll give it a shot. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty loose the way they describe Mm -hmm. it and introduce it, but it's super helpful for teaching. It's not... It's not super rigid, like you would think a master 's right. thesis would be you need all these parts, and it needs it 's mostly like what do you want to do in your classroom that maybe you haven 't tried yet, yeah, like what question do you have that you can manipulate certain factors in the room and see how it works because teaching such an exploratory profession right i right? 'm always trying new things in the classroom if it doesn 't work, throw it out if it does great i 'm adding something to my arsenal, um, but it 's like a ye- it's a year long mm-hmm question or process something that you want to work into your curriculum see if it works and then like gathering data and Mm -hmm. by data it's just really your observations right it's like Mm -hmm. how is this working and how are my students interacting with this that I'm bringing into the classroom yeah that's how I describe it
1: yeah I would say just to add on to that it's a bit more of reflective like we, we like to call ourselves reflective practitioners right like you are like purposely thinking about pedagogical approaches. You're thinking about the curriculum you're using in your classroom. You're thinking about the ways you're thinking about your environment, what you're changing. Um, so to me, that was also an appeal. Like, I, I think that we can get caught up in our craft sometimes and think like we've nailed it, like we've been doing this for so long, like this is the best that it's gonna be. Um, and for some people that might very well be the case, but. For as a young educator, I feel like especially when things are evolving so quickly with technology, there's no reason why you shouldn't be always evolving and reflecting on your craft as a teacher. So, um, this has been like a pretty impactful year of just reconsidering things that I had thought to be good practices and may not necessarily be.
0: Yeah, and I think the whole Penn Fellowship is a reflective (laughs) two year journey basically because I was shocked when I got into the master's program and it was. Like, our, our essays are like, reflect on a class that you felt you did. Like, the, they're, they're reflective essays that we were writing. But yeah. I think that's such an important part of teaching because you're always learning and, you know, changing your style, especially in your first two years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was the biggest thing for me is to developing a style. Like, what kind of teacher am I? Who am I in mm-hmm. the classroom? Like, I'm taking on a new role.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but I think that's, that's really what I, the, the biggest thing I got from the program is yeah. figuring out like what What i'm doing in the classroom who, who am i i just had a quick question about the inquiry project that you're working on um and that's again it's a year-long project but your question about like critical thinking about history that's that's such a tough question for middle school because <laughs> C- they you probably find out that they don't don't critically think about much in sixth grade <laughs> or seventh grade right because you're living with your parents, everything's given to you, like everything is, is there that you don't really ask questions. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in middle school, I probably thought my parents, they knew everything about everything and they were always right. <laughs> or my teachers knew everything about everything and were always right. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, how much when you started your project did you find that they were already critically thinking about history?
1: Um. So, yeah, I think my – sort of interest in this is that social studies is known to be the most hated subject in the United States by any student Um, it's just history it's not enjoyed Um, in fact it's like shown by studies that the more you take history the less you actually retain because you have such disdain that keeps growing that you like literally become reluctant like you do not Want to continue to learn history. Um, and so in I. In middle school or in middle general? Middle school, high school, college, like really? it is in general. Yep. It is a thing. It's like the
0: most interesting subject.
1: That's what I say. Uh. But a lot of people don't think that way. Um, and so I thought that that was pretty fascinating because of the same reason. I'm like, this is literally what tells you how people work, how societies operate, and why. Um, and so I would say that. The social studies department in the middle school is doing a great job in trying to get students to critically think about whatever is exposed or given to them Um, and that's what gets people intrigued that's what gets them intrigued in history early on because they're not regurgitating facts Mm -hmm. they're not giving you a timeline and saying you need to remember these 100 things that happen in history because they are the most pivotal and important right Mm -hmm. no one's going to want to enjoy that Um, so my point was sort of creating more nuanced pictures, and that's where the critical thinking comes in place. So it's not that students are um given something and told like Abraham Lincoln was the best man ever and then they have to regurgitate that to me. It's like think about all these different points of Abraham Lincoln and tell me what your interpretation of that history is. Mm -hmm. Um, How will you like Abraham Lincoln to be remembered? Um, That's in fact one of my upcoming assignments. It's like was Abraham Lincoln the great emancipator and how are we how do we consider him post-mortem? Is that different from when he was alive and was our president? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my thinking of how to sort of give us a new idea of what history is and actually have students um, working to engage in a way that they may not have done otherwise. So really getting kids to sort of consider moving points and different biases and come up with their own. And that's what's going to be remembered down the line. It's not a particular date. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And I think just the way we look at history, especially when we're younger, is this is the truth. And if you if I mean, you look at the news today and you look at all these different, this this will help students in terms of just current events and mm-hmm. reading the news and looking at the news because right. the way you interpret something is completely different than the way I interpret something, mm-hmm. but we can have a conversation about that. That's where it's really meaningful and right. where you get a lot out of it. Mm-hmm. So um, that's all. Aw- that sounds like an awesome project. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about the book you brought in for your recommendation, and this is one that you're using for your inquiry project, so it lines yeah. up perfectly. Yeah. Um I actually had my history teacher, I think, brought this in. <laughs> which it, it, it has an interesting, shocking title yeah. because you're like, Why is my teacher telling me about this book? About this book. Yeah. Um but if you could just hold it up to the camera so people yeah. can see, what what is this book you brought in?
1: Um so this is Lies My Teacher Told Me Um by James Lowen, and it's everything your American history textbook got wrong. So it's a humbling experience for a lot of teachers. Um and I think that it he sort of goes through um, different chapters. So my favorite chapter is on on John Brown versus Abraham Lincoln and how we consider those two figures in history. Um, So in essence, it just talks about nuancing, again, perspectives. We see this idea of how we can think about a particular person as either a hero or a villain. Um, We can think about this person as someone who is not ever remembered in textbooks versus why others may be sort of the foundation of American textbooks and how people get presented so um, James lowen does a good job in this book of sort of giving a lot of information that is sometimes um, not particularly part of the narrative of textbooks um, mm. and sort of just gives a wider picture um, and so I've, I've read a couple of excerpts to my seventh graders um, and they have like I've seen light bulbs going off in their brain of like wow that's that's a different perspective, right? It's not that I'm giving the, this to them as the truth, but it's just a different rendition of the truth. Right. Um, and it's up to them to sort of construct that knowledge and think about. It just about, maybe
0: disrupts their, yeah, you know, the way that they've always thought about a certain subject or a th- right. certain person. Yeah. But you have to realize that all people, no matter who it is, if you're living today or you're yeah. living, if you're Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> if you're George Washington, doesn't matter. You're a person, so you have good qualities about you and qualities that we need to remember and keep in place Mm -hmm. in America and history. You also have bad qualities about you. You've you've messed up and we know about your your mess ups.
1: Yeah, I think that that's like one of the parts um, that we're getting into now as we study Abraham Lincoln is that um, you do have those good and negative qualities, as any human would, and you're put on a pedestal, so that's going to come to the light even more and to the forefront even more, right, because you're sort of this big figurehead that's important to American history, so everything you've ever done will be exposed, um, and that people can evolve, and I think that's the most important part for me. It's like mm-hmm. you can have bit, like had a lot of negative qualities at a particular moment in your life, but you grow and you can evolve to maybe not be such a poopy person, right? Yeah. Like
0: Well, that's yeah, that's the most important part for me too. Like you you can look at a specific person in a certain period of their life and co- totally cast them out for that right? and say we like they we shouldn't I actually I teach a senior elective and we talk about Gandhi as one of the figures. Yeah. And it's about moral leadership and how great of a person Gandhi was and he did all of these amazing things and he you know, he was radically, and yeah, we can finish up in a second. But he was radically uh, good in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But then you find out that he he had some racial issues. He had some things with young women that. Yeah. And I asked my class, should we just not study Gandhi and moral leadership because he had these issues, or right. not? And that was that was a whole conversation. And I had some kids who said no, and I was like, well, wow. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like tell me more. I want to I want to talk about that because in my opinion, it's not black or white. And we, I wouldn't want someone 30 years from now looking back on me and say, Well, I
1: hope you're still alive in 30 years.
0: Yeah, or 100 100 years, whatever, 100 years, like looking back on us as a generation and all the things that we're doing that they're going to find out are just super wrong. Right, right. You know? I
1: think like a super fascinating project would be like give excerpts of Abraham Lincoln's life at a particular point and then at a different point and you'll see like, are these two people the same person? Yes, in fact, it is. And when kids come to that like conclusion, they're like, "Holy smokes!" Like, so any rendition of history that you received, if it's just about, about a particular time period, it's not always going to be the full truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my kids uh, said, like, "Well, how do we know what we're learning is the truth?" And I'm like, "Well, that's for you to decide for yourself, right? Like, there's no way that I can tell you that one particular thought is the truth because." as we see it continues to be evolved particularly when we're studying history like things come to the surface sometimes later rather than sooner right so yeah. um yeah I mean, it's been a fascinating year to sort of begin to study this stuff
0: yeah and like we don't even know the truth in current events today how are we going to know the truth yeah. in 1856 yeah. it's just uh it's a conversation so i think that's an awesome Certainly. project in a great recommendation to just disrupt like your version of reality and create these conversations so um but erica it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast shame you shame we have to wrap up now but hopefully you can come back and we can talk more about how this inquiry project is going for you in your second year
1: would love to thank you for having me on it's been a pleasure
0: thank you